Welcome to the movies that made me. Uh, I'm your host, Luke Sorber. Before I introduce my guests, uh, I'm going to say a little bit about double acts, partnerships and couples. I couldn't quite decide what the best way of describing this particular aspect of filmmaking um, is the best but call them what you want i'm looking for movies that have that special chemistry between two co-stars which can ignite a movie and i've noticed that in my list most of comedies but not exclusively so however i will start with some of the earliest um movies in this category that I remember watching on telly, uh, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, for instance, in movies like uh, The Road to Morocco. More recently, it might be Harold and Kumar escaping from Guantanamo Bay. We have Mel Gibson and Danny Glover as Murtagh and Riggs in Lethal Weapon, or Tracy and Hepburn as Adam and Amanda in Adam's Rib. There was Tarzan and Jane in Tarzan the Ape Man, or you could go for Tarzan and Cheetah, in the same movie, or two non-humans such as Donkey and Shrek in Shrek, or Baloo and Bagheera in The Jungle Book, Timon and Pumba in The Lion King, and then their own spin-off. British cinema gave us Sid James and Barbara Windsor in Carry On Doctor, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in Dracula, Hollywood delivered Karloff and Lugosi in The Black Cat, and Abbott Costello meeting Frankenstein, and the legendary Laurel and Hardy in Sons of the Desert. Buddy cops include Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce as Holmes and Watson in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy in The Heat, Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan in Rush Hour. There has been Thelma and Louise with Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis, or Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell in His Girl Friday, Doris Day and Rock Hudson in Pillow Talk, William Powell and Myrna Loy as Nick and Nora in the Thin Man franchise, Bogey and Bacall in To Have and Have Not, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. We have had Heartthrobs, Newman and Redford in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, or Robot C-3PO and R2-D2 in Star Wars. Steve Martin and Lily Thomas were hilarious in All of Me, as to Armira Sorvino and Lisa Kudrow in Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. Then there's Kevin Hart and Dwayne Johnson in Central Intelligence, Jeff Daniels and Jim Carrey in Dumb and Dumber, which I've never seen. And of course, Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau in The Odd Couple, which I have. Michael Redgrave was outstanding opposite his ventriloquist's dummy in Dead of Night and Lindsay Lohan opposite herself in The Parent Trap, as was Hayley Mills in the original. We had Bill Bojangles, Robinson and Shirley Temple show-stopping in The Little Colonel and Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers doing the same in Top Hat. And there are great cross-generational pairings such as Big Daddy and Hit Girl with Nick Cage and Chloe Grace Moretz as father and daughter in Kick-Ass as well as Heck and Ricky, played by Sam Neill and Julian Dennison in Hunt for the Wilder People. And that's without mentioning any of the films that will be considered in this episode and chosen by the double act, who are my guests today, uh, so they get a chance to speak now, playwright, actor and theatre director Leslie Ann Alberston and her husband, actor and TV presenter Neil Cole. Welcome to the podcast uh, I hope you are well and uh, thinking about movies. So I'm going to move from my list of um, sort of films with co-stars who have special chemistry that I can remember into ones that you've chosen. I'd love to hear a little bit about 
uh, the movie itself, the content, and then obviously why it has resonated with you. And do um, do join in when it comes to discussing um, people's um, suggested movies. But I will start by giving the platform to Neil because you have volunteered way out west with Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy. And I, I put their first names in just to be yes, good. which way out west uh, we're talking about. Uh, I had huge fun re-watching it, not having seen it in a while. But um, let's find out why you um, have fun watching this film. I think uh, it was it was tricky because, like you, I went through a list in my head of all the films that had been meaningful to me that had double acts and uh, couples. And, you know, things like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and um, Casablanca, they were sort of on my list. But I just couldn't, couldn't ignore Laurel and Hardy. So the, 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 one of the main reasons is I, I remember watching Laurel and Hardy as a kid. So it was like it was hard to actually choose which film. But, and also there are loads of shorts. So I had to almost randomly choose this one. But this was the one I remembered because it was sort of had a Western theme. It was kind of felt like a cowboy film, even though it wasn't cowboys as such. Um, and because my sort of my career began in a double act, as well as the lifelong double act that I am in with Leslie, um, uh, sort of a comedy double act, that dynamic I felt was important to to flag up in this podcast. So it basically Stan and Ollie um, are on a mission and they're very tatty. I think the idea is that they're quite poor. So they've been employed to go across the United States to a place called Brushwood Gulch to deliver deeds to a girl whose father has died, having, without her knowledge, become an extremely wealthy gold prospector. And he's left her the, the, um, the gold mine in his will. But she doesn't know anything about it, which is weird. I suppose she didn't have Twitter. Um, and then, uh, but the, the scheming... Uh, bar owner where the where the girl works decides that they will he and his wife will pretend that his wife is the mary roberts and um take the deeds for themselves and then hilarious slapstick ensues and it there was so much to to, to enjoy watching it again like you i hadn't seen it for several years but there are so many sort of jokes that are shared across the decades so of course at the time there was sort of came out of the musical tradition so they were like a lot of the musical acts, you know, they were doing each other's material, which is very frowned on now. But you look at it, you look at um, uh, Oliver Hardy's looks to the camera. I mean, that's un incredibly modern. It's very oh, metal. Not just looks to the camera. What about the, the metatextual line um, uh, that, that, that Stan says? Um, How do you get changed so fast? So he's 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 kind of noticing that they've bent time for a joke to work oliver didn't have the time to get changed between having his clothes ripped off in a sort of chase scene and emerging in the next one yeah i, I hadn't remembered it and i was stunned it's very meta there's loads of little little um breaking down the fourth wall uh stepping outside the conventions of film um and they just take it in their stride it's incredibly modern like that but there's loads of gags that you see like everything from uh Ollie, or Babe, as he's known, falling in an unexpectedly deep part of the creek. Um, you know, that was copied by Dawn French and Vicar of Dibley. There's, there's so many gags and some brilliantly surreal gags. There's lots of Vic and Bob in there, obviously another double act, but like the lighting the thumb 
uh, lighting a flame out of your thumb, the stretching of the neck, which is an extraordinary effect, the, the donkey being winched up, playing with the weight differential between Oliver Hardy and a, and a donkey. Um, there's so much in there that's... Uh, and of course, famously, or not necessarily famously, but the actor that plays... The, um, it was hilarious to watch him. The actor that plays the bar owner, the scheming bar owner, who is uh, James Finlayson, um, he's mugging at the. He's just mugging the whole time. He just does a very extraordinary. Like, well, uh, he's only mugging, Neil. I'm sure you know this. When the shotgun goes off and he's sitting in his bed, his reaction is to say, "Don't." And that's where um, Dan Castellaneta took. Homer Simpson's signature noise. Did you enjoy it, um, Leslie? I did enjoy it. Um, it did take me back to my childhood um, when we spent many a happy family afternoon watching the old black and white um, comedies, Laurel and Hardy, all of them, really. Um, and, I mean, we only ever saw things in black and white in those days. We only had a black and white TV. But I did love Charlie Chaplin more than Laurel and Hardy but um it does seem slow and very mannered and drawn out by today's standards of of comedies which are normally really fast um and sort of quick fire jokes and things so you have to sort of sit and wait and wait for the for the the joke to come um but when it comes, it really delivers. Yeah, know. yeah. I think Charlie Chaplin is like a one-man double act, yeah. as is Buster Keaton, really. Uh, yeah. Um, I was thinking of the other silent um, stars and who was equally funny with sound. But I think only Charlie Chaplin and Laurel and Hardy were equally funny in their sound movies uh, as their contemporaries. And I love Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, uh, but that's something that I think makes them special. In terms of, so I get what you're saying about the, you know, the long setups before you get the punchline, but the relationship. So uh, the status relationship for me is instant because when they are introduced, the mule is walking along, standing next to the mule is Stan with like the, the pig hats and the big bag, uh, you know, on his shoulders. Uh, and they're pulling some kind of, uh, yeah, some kind of train full of furs and lying on it like Cleopatra. <laughs> Is, um, is Oliver Hardy. So you've got the kind of high status, low status relationship before a joke's been made. Or you could say that's the first joke when you, when you see them like that. However, uh, that doesn't mean that the high status, one of the two, is going to avoid humiliating themselves and injuring themselves and so on. And in fact, it may even be funnier because the high status character's got further to fall and he is literally the one that falls into the pool because there's far less comedy to be milked from a, a low status person uh, sort of injuring Yeah, punching downwards isn't funny. Mm. Um, no, you're right. The status is established very early. and that, But their relationship is, there's so much love there, which sort of leaps from the screen. Uh, they just adore working with each other and clearly having a lot of fun. Like, there's the scene where um, uh, Lola Marcel, played by Sharon Lynn, is um, tickling. She's trying to get the deeds out of um, Stan's shirt and is accidentally tickling him for ages. And you can see she's corpsing. She is laughing. She's supposed to be deadly serious trying to get the deeds out of his shirt. And she is 
actually visibly laughing at how funny um, mm. Stanley is. Uh, and th- there's, there's, there is a joy underlying all of it um, between the, the dynamic of the relationship on and off screen between the two of them, which is, which is quite sweet. And uh, they, are, uh, they are benign as well. They're not trying to rip anyone off or con anyone. They're actually trying to do a nice thing I think you find that with um, quite a lot of double acts. They're just trying to get out of scrapes and bad situations and they just want to better their lives and make some money somehow. Sometimes they have to do it in a devious way, but um, that seems to be the overall goal and just to sort of try and keep out of danger, but inevitably end up in danger in doing that. Um, yeah, I was thinking a contrast with uh, the more modern Dangerous Brothers, uh, who are kind of mischief makers oh, and yeah. the destruction. They kind of want to create destruction, but what Leslie said is, I think, I think you're spot on. Lauren Hardy do not want to create chaos. It, it just sort of happens to them, and perhaps that's why we we have so much affection for them. As you know, they're not victims of any of any uh, malice, uh, of any of their own malice. I just love it. And there's a thing which I like is the, apart from the obvious jokes, like he has to eat his hat, which is made of licorice. Um, But there's this sort of continuity that everything that happens to them damages their clothing. And it's the continuity is it's like Die Hard. Basically, he starts well dressed and ends up a, a torn and tatty, dark vested, bloody mess. And they that happens in a in a less Bruce Willis kind of way to Laurel and Hardy, they, they, they bear with them the scars of their journey from start to finish. Um, and the beautiful like reincorporation, like he, he's got a hole in his boot because he's poor and has walked across the country dragging the donkey and he's the buckaroo. And he's got a hole in his boot, so he tries to fill it with some meat that's too tough for the customer. And then the dogs start to sniff around his foot so he feeds the meat to the dogs. It's like the seats so some gags are set up and they just take about four or five scenes to deliver. And that's, mm. that's really lovely, I think, as well. And of course, uh, you know, Die Hard. I mean, the, the similarities are obvious. It's not just the vest that we often <laughs> seen um, uh, Ollie in, but yes, uh, but losing his shoes, that's what happens to Bruce Willis, isn't it, in, in Die Hard? I haven't seen those connections before, Neil, but I, I'm going to rewatch Die Hard. Uh, Leslie, can I move to your first yeah. film? We'll come yeah. back to Neil for his second one soon. You've chosen Shakespeare in Love. Um, I chose it because it's a got a little theme that's running through my mind at the moment which is cross-dressing transgender which is very much talked about at the moment um but this film just takes you right back seductively to a time when men and women both dressed up to their to, to their best the men wore beautiful velvet embroidered clothes as well as women everybody just looked fantastic if you could afford the clothes um it 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 rings a a little it hits a little note in me also because my father who was straight um did occasionally in his youth like to dress up in female clothes he was part of an act that used to tour around um 
where they uh, used to cross-dress. They, they had a woman who uh, used to dress as a man, like a Burlington Bertie type. And my dad and another man used to dress as women. And they went around the cabaret circuits up north um, doing this for years and years. And it was always a normal thing that, you know, dad used to dress up as a woman. Um, and in fact, when when he died recently and we were sorting out all his clothes, we found some of his dresses, and <laughs> which was strange, but also, you know, pretty okay. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, I went to see, you used to know Eddie Izzard as well, didn't you? He's an old contemporary of ours going back. Yes. And I yeah. went to see her in her one woman show. Um, he does the whole of Great Expectations in two hours. And she looks fantastic dressed in the way that she dresses now. And uh, this just kind of rung a bell with me, all this lovely cross-dressing. We've got that in my other film choice as well. But in Shakespeare in Love, you, we've got it many, many layered. You've got, um, I mean, Shakespeare used it as a device because they weren't allowed to have women in the theatre. So they used to have to get boys to play. Uh, girls and then they disguise themselves as men so you, you had all this sort of multi-layering of um, disguises and you know what gender are you and who falls in love with who and what have you so um, that's the way I chose this and it's a time when it was okay for everybody to wear makeup and jewels and the more the more lavish you were dressed male or female you know the the more attractive you were now, um, I'd forgotten, uh, revisiting uh, uh, the movie, that as well as uh, Gwyneth Paltrow um, pretending, trying to pass some mail so that she can uh, legitimately have a part in, in the play that Shakespeare's writing, that, that Joe finds as Shakespeare, um, I'd forgotten there's a scene in which he tries to pass to, as a girl. That's right. I completely he, forgot that. He yeah. uses it to sneak out of her bedroom when... Um, her suitor, who she's got to marry, because she wants she's got to marry a millionaire, uh, and that's a through thread into uh, my other film choice, Some Like It Hot. Um, they've spent the night together. I mean, they they're madly in love, but the only way that Shakespeare can escape is sort of a bit like um, Toad of Toad Hall when he escapes as a washerwoman, which is a bit controversial <laughs> now, um, dressed as a as a as a servant, a female servant, and he sneaks past mm. um, the, was he, the Earl of Essex, who's that play, played by Colin Firth, brilliantly, um, to get out of, to get out of the house. Um, mm. Yeah, and he uses it later because he, he goes to see um, the Queen, played by Judy Dench, talking to um, the Viola, Gwyneth Paltrow's character, where she uh, has an audience with the Queen. Um, yeah, and he's in the background dressed again as this sort of female servant. So lots and lots of cross-dressing. Mm. And uh, Judy Dench uh, wore her own clothes. Uh, as, <laughs> as the, the only actually, actor. That, actually, that, that, that was my dress. Well, she's she's been working ever since the 17th century, as far as I can, I can work I out. I mean, what a cast. That oh, film, when you watch yeah. it again, that's yeah. absolutely a Jeffrey Rush. It's just absolutely Rupert Everett's packed, absolutely packed yeah, with brilliant. Imelda, Richard Burbage, yeah, Imelda. Where is she now? Um, just uh, I, no, you, I, you, this is Imelda Staunton. 
Yeah. Not Imelda Marcos, the, <laughs> the late uh, the widow of the president of the Philippines. Although the number of shoes in this film would be impressive, would even be in Imelda Marcos's yeah. wardrobe. But and, I think, and you've got you've got Rupert Everett sneaking in there as Christopher Marlowe, and there's this lovely clever twist because we've never really sorted out what did really happen to Marlowe, and mm. they kind of. You know, Stoppard writes in this little, little twist where um, uh, Shakespeare pretends that he's Marlowe and and Colin Firth has him killed, but it's Marlowe that gets killed really. Um, and so that's that's quite a nice little plot twist there that I think was fabricated just for the film. It is a bit of a mystery though. I live in Lewisham and I have been on a walking tour where I was taken to the spot where. Marlowe allegedly was really? murdered in a outside a Deptford pub. Oh, but, that's exciting and macabre. Well, that's a busy high street now. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, I tried to I tried to re, I tried to imagine being you know being in the kind of that's shadowy Tudor times. Yeah. 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 I, I think. I mean, I love. I absolutely adore this film. I think when I was younger. I just really enjoyed sort of patting myself on the back to get all of the references to all of the Shakespeare and Marlowe and Johnson plays. But watching it again for more recently, I I found it really moving politically and emotionally. I think that sort of they are Shakespeare, uh, um, Joseph Fiennes and, and oh, Gwyneth Paltrow's character are star-crossed lovers. They're never going to be able to be together, but um. they are so in love and it's, it's really heartbreaking. And the other side is the, the sort of patriarchy and the line that Judy Dench delivers. Like, I know a thing or two about uh, being a woman in a man's world. And you go, that's, that's incredible. I mean, there was so much more to, to, to enjoy watching it again. Yeah. Um, yeah. But those two are incredible together, Gwyneth They're and Joseph. hypnotic. Oh. I mean, the, the moment they first sort of look into each other's eyes, you see them fall absolutely madly in love. And then that is just the crux of the film, this love and this passion. And then you get all this beautiful montage of them falling in love. He realises that this uh, boy that comes to audition, which he finds himself strangely attracted to, um, uh, he follows her, he chases after her and he gets in a boat and then you get the um, the bloke rowing the boat, you know, a bit like your London cabbie going, oh, I've had Christopher Marlowe in my boat before. And then he tries to give Shakespeare his uh, script to read. And then <laughs> um, Gwyneth just, Viola runs up the steps and the guy in the boat says, well, that, that's, that's, what's her name? That's, that's the woman. And then Shakespeare realizes who she is, and then um, and then eventually they, uh, you know, they get together. Um, and mm. then she gets the part, and then you've got this gorgeous montage of them um, falling in love, rehearsing the play. She's dressed as a boy, and she's she's playing Romeo with a male actor playing Juliet, and then it's sort of crosses over to them learning lines in the bedroom and he's writing the play because he had writer's block but now he's in love um he can write again and it just all pours out and you see the building of Romeo and Juliet uh, on this amazing set of the Globe Theatre which is one of my favorite places in the world mm. so yeah it's just full of passion a lot of it is fabricated but a lot of it is based on 
fact and reality about Shakespeare's life in those early days and and it's um it, 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 yeah I think um I think you've really captured it um f for me as well it, because it's it's a wonderful romantic drama it's a wonderful romantic comedy and it's just the most erudite kind of pastiche of of, of Shakespeare all, all rolled into one I would also add from my point of view as a kind of movie nerd I think it's the best thing Joe Fiennes has ever done on a cinema screen absolutely. and the best thing Gwyneth Paltrow's absolutely. Uh, ever done Mm -hmm. And and that sometimes it's because they met each other and they had that moment and they really shone. And since then, um, obviously, Fines has got uh, his role as the evil commander in The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. And Gwynny now sells luxury nonsense <laughs> to um, people prepared to pay for it. I'm going to move to your next film, Neil, and which is much more contemporary. And you've chosen Fight Club. Yes. Um, Rove this, a bruised friend. <laughs> so I, I know we're not supposed to talk about Fight Club, so I'm breaking, <laughs> I'm breaking both of the first two rules. Um, but my, firstly, my reason for choosing this is because it made a, a very, very deep impact on me when I saw it. But... Um, I used to be in a comedy double act with my good friend, Tom Hillenbrand. And the first time we started to get really good uh, paid gigs around the country, I think it was our first run at the Glee Club in Birmingham. So we were kind of doing whatever it is you did, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So we were staying in Birmingham and we just had time to kill in the afternoons. Um, and it was the week that Fight Club came out. So I think we must have gone on the, the Friday afternoon to the multiplex. So me and my double act partner sat in a cinema and watched this extraordinarily dark, violent, hilarious, philosophical, complex movie, and then just came out and had to sort of perform comedy that night. And I think we actually put a line in, in our set that night, where one of us just said, I want you to hit me as hard as you can. And I can't even remember what the payoff was, but it was too soon, because no one else had seen the film that day. It hadn't become, because I think it was a bit of a slow burn. Uh, Fight Club. Yes, it was a movie that didn't do great box office, but then was a massive hit on DVD, although some would have been familiar with the book. Um, so the stuff around Fight Club and reading the rules has entered the language now, even from people who haven't read the book or seen the film. Uh, I think, um, and one thing that's very clever about the, the rules of Fight Club is because of the massive twist. I mean, we, are we going to I suppose the fact that I'm talking about a double act, we have to address the elephant in the room, that there isn't an elephant in the room. Well, I, I think we will allow the spoiler because the nature of the relationship between the two characters can only be properly illustrated by giving away the ending. Which is okay. What we well, which I'll, which I'll let you do, Neil, so I don't get into trouble. So basically, you have this guy who doesn't have a name. He's known as the narrator, played by Ed Norton. Um, and he's going through an insomnia, a crisis. And then he randomly meets this incredible, charismatic, smart, sexy character played by Brad Pitt called Tyler Durden. And then his life kind of changes and they become this destructive, dynamic, sexy partnership that then turn into a terrorist cell uh, railing against commercialism and corporate uh, dominance. And, and the, 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 the payoff is that there is no Tyler Durden, that it's just a side of the narrator's personality that he's exploiting to do the things that he would be too scared to do if he were just himself. And it's a massive and 
I think I think that film, still watching it again now, you have to do so much mental gymnastics to retrofit the absence of Tyler Durden um, from the first time he appears because you you still can't quite work out exactly how he does all the things. And it does explain it narratively in the film, how he's able to do it because he just doesn't sleep when he shut his kind of, kind of whatever the official term for it is. Sorry, there's just a cat walking across my roof. And uh, the, you know, it's multiple personality disorder, I guess. So when one part of his brain switches off, that's when Tyler Durden takes over. But basically this one person has done all of this stuff and he fights himself and he starts Fight Club. Um, so the, the, the double act there is something that I, that really sort of struck a chord with me because they're sort of different facets to my life. When I, when I do certain things, acting, obviously you have to play a character, but also in other walks of life, I know that I put on a different persona and you always want to be perceived as the kind of Tyler Durden version of you. And I think that Brad Pitt's, it's like the performance of a lifetime by Brad Pitt. He is incredible in it. And, you know, other actors could have just sort of walked through that, just knowing that they were beautiful and um, charismatic. But he just, he delivers and delivers and delivers. And I think the unsung hero of the film is, or is um, Helena Bonham Carter, because her, her character is kind of a, a, a true line. She gives hints all the way through that the narrator is also Tyler Durden. And you, you, when you watch it again, you realise that she's just speaking to the same person all the time. So, so the relationship between Tyler Durden and the narrator is one of almost wish fulfilment, isn't it? There's a line in which Brad Pitt, as the projection says, um, I am uh, the person you would like to look like, the person you'd like to fuck like, and, all, and also I'm completely free. So I was going to ask the two of you if you each could project this wish fulfillment other version. Not that you aren't already people <laughs> I would like to look like and everything else like. Uh, uh, Leslie, who would be your Tyler Durden projection? Helen Bonham Carter, obviously. Yeah, I, I mean she's just amazing. I love her. She's a fantastic actor. Um, but in real life as well, she's she's super cool. I love the way she dresses. I love her attitude. She's very individual, but she's also just so attractive and interesting. I love her. I love her so much. I, I yeah, I'd really like to be her. Love to be her. Mm -hmm. um, that's a, that's a very good case being made, Neil. You've had a bit of extra time to think of yours. Well, up until um, twenty four hours ago, I would probably have said Will Smith. <laughs> Oh dear, that's very topical. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, someone who just appears to be incredibly intelligent, incredibly strong, incredibly talented, and sort of very giving uh, um, would have been my choice. But then he punched Chris Rock, and now we don't know how to feel about him. Well, I, I, what I, I know how, how I feel about him, which is for someone who played Muhammad Ali in a movie, uh, I would have expected a much better punch. So I was, <laughs> I was disappointed on a number of levels by Will Smith's behaviour. So uh, any other thoughts from you, Leslie, on this very, can I say it, very male, uh, an exploration of a very masculine double act, which we then find out are actually two elements within uh, a male person. Can you speak on behalf of all women now, Leslie? <laughs> um, I don't really know what I should say. I mean, I... I didn't really think that it was 
very male. I just thought the characters were, the the character was extremely interesting. I mean, I'm so used to watching male-dominated films and TV things that I I kind of um, stop. I sort of blank it out. I mean, occasionally I do say there's only one woman in this, um, mm. but in the in the case of Fight Club, it, it, it's kind of irrelevant that they were male and they were fighting. I mean, women fight. We all get a bit fighty. Women like a good fight as well. Um, maybe they should do a go like they did the Ghostbusters reboot. Maybe they should do an all female Fight Club reboot. I was just thinking that they should do. Yeah, who could you who could you get to play it? Or you get Lupita Nyong'o and uh, um, Florence Pugh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, that's, yeah, a, that's, that's a, a two fantastic casts. That's a great uh, idea. And one thing that one thing I just about Fight Club that because there was such a spoiler, you know, the the the, the twist is on the same kind of level as Sixth Sense. It's such an enormous twist. And oh even, no! Don't give away two films in the same um, show. The, and, too many spoilers and like um like way out west the film plays with the nature of it being a film because there's even a, an in meta joke when they revisit the ending that starts the film and mm-hmm. they change the line of dialogue and brad pitt's character comments on that um but at even another layer of meta the rule the first rule of fight club you do not talk about fight club is almost an instruction to audiences and critics please don't talk about Fight Club when you leave the cinema. Yes. Um, and that, I, lo- I love the sort of metatextual layers that you get with a movie like this. Of course, they borrowed that from The Mousetrap, where they used to tell the audience <laughs> not to talk about the ending of The Mousetrap. Um, Very similar works. And the, well, they still do, in fact, uh, uh, make the same uh, exhortation to the audience at the end of the movie. Brad Pitt, perfect, perfect casting. Edward Norton, very good at everything he does. Brad Pitt really shone. It was almost Russell Crowe, but I think Brad Pitt was, um, I just seemed made for him. Made Absolutely, for him. yeah. Thank you for talking about Fight Club, even though uh, we shouldn't really have. Um, your next movie, you've, you've teed it up earlier. Uh, by mentioning it uh, by name, in fact. But for those who are listening and didn't pick up on it, it's going to be Billy Wider's... Billy Wider's. Wilder. <laughs> Billy Wide-on. For those who didn't... <laughs> calm down, calm down, calm down. No, Billy Wilder was a, was the most famous oh. guest that my dad ever had at his restaurant. Anyway. Really? He rang me up yeah. to say Billy Wilder's here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you just um, highlighted your Italian uh, heritage, and I did notice it, was, it is a coincidence. Not only do my two films um, have cross-dressing in them, but they've also got the, it, an Italian theme. Obviously, Shakespeare in Love, Romeo and Juliet set in Verona, where we lay mm-hmm. the scene. And then, um, yeah. and then jumping forward in time to Chicago 1929, We've got the mafia during. We um, do. It's not literally Italy, but it is. Uh, it is Italian American. It yes. is Italian Americans. Yeah. Italians are there, like ruling, ruling. Um, you know, the sort of underworld during uh, the period of prohibition, and yeah, nineteen twenty-nine Chicago. 
Now, this has got three great performances. So I'm going to put you on the spot, Leslie. Which, the dynamic between which, for you, shines the brightest? I found it really hard to say which things I preferred. Tony and Marilyn, Tony and Jack, Jack and Marilyn. Well, it, it obviously, um, Marilyn doesn't come into it until sort of must be nearly halfway through. Oh, that's true. That is true. There's a lot of, of just the, the boys. The um, boys are brilliant. We've got Jack Lemon and we've got Tony Curtis, two absolutely gorgeous matinee idols, which, um, yeah, they work together a lot. Um, and, and yeah, they, they, they're... They're together. They're these um, musicians. They're poor, but um, they're just trying to work um, and earn earn a crust of bread, you know. Um, but then they witness um, the St. Valentine's Day massacre, and they mm. get all caught up in that plot, and um, just through a, a whole series of events where they're just trying to escape because the leader of the mafia. Um, they've all got brilliant names. Um, what is the Spats name? Spats Colombo, is it? Spats Colombo. And there's, yeah, there's spats in it. I mean, what are spats? Why do you wear these bits of white fabric over the top of your shoes? And why were they such a big thing in those days? I, I, I don't understand them at all. But, yeah, Spats Colombo um, uh, works out that they've witnessed the massacre and try to, you know, catch them. But they manage to escape. And then they have to um, go to their agent who says, well, the only job I can get you at the moment is in an all-girl band in Florida and they're just about to set off. So in the end, they agree that they will be the bass player and the saxophonist in this all-girl band and disguise themselves as women. Um, So basically, they're on the run, dressed as women. um, And there's a big, big build-up to this this historic filmic moment when you see them dressed as women at the train station to catch this big steam train from Chicago to Florida, um, which is an epic train journey in itself. Um, There's this moment where Malloran just wiggles down the train platform with her ukulele and all her luggage. And she's in the band. She's the ukulele player. And then... That, that's when the movie really starts to take off because you've got this sort of three-way dynamic between them all. And that's when they find it harder and harder to hide their their their, their genuine uh, erections. Maleness. <laughs> I was going to say their their, their their gender identities, um, but of which part of it is certainly uh, manifested that way yeah. because they both. Well, it's interesting. Well, more than interesting, it's incredibly entertaining the different who's attracted to who yeah. in what persona are they yes. attracted to that person and it's I, just and a it wonderful a choice work of yeah, desire to make it in black and white because lots of films were being made in color in those days in 1958 when i was born um uh because apparently they thought that the uh, jack lemon and tony curtis look better in female makeup uh, mm-hmm. In black and white, and I oh, think I Tony Curtis yeah. looks pretty cute in lipstick. He really does. He, he, 
he's beautiful. Look, look, Tony Curtis is, I mean, Jack Lemmon is a, has got a very pleasant face, a charming, attractive man. Tony Curtis is beautiful in this film, uh, but uh, in, in his different incarnations, as yeah. his sort of genuine self, as the, as the, 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 the captain of the cruise ship and and as um oh what's his uh um taken name um is it genevieve is he genevieve no he's josephine because his name he's is josephine. joe and then they try to make jerry the jack lemon's character Je- uh, geraldine but he he plumps for daphne daphne mm. um and uh yeah, and they, they, during the train journey, they, um, they the thing is, is that it's a strict no alcohol or partying policy by the the band leader woman, who's um, sort of you know sends them to bed early on this lovely long sleeper train. But then um, uh, uh, sugar sugar cane um, Marilyn um, sort of comes to thank um, Jack Lemon's character Daphne in bed um because he covered up for her when she dropped her flask of alcohol um Mm -hmm. and she's like lying next to him and going oh thank you and uh he's obviously quite excited by the fact that he's got her lying next to him and then they get some whiskey and then all the other band members come and they kind of have this girly party and i've got no idea that these two blokes uh, are there sort of enjoying all their female company on the train? So that's a great scene as well. Yeah, well, it's great. It uh, also made me think that um, the, the girls actually are the ones behaving badly and the boys are trying to not yeah. behave badly <laughs> and only get caught. But of course, deep down, they probably do want to behave badly. Uh, it's so subtle. It, it's, it just reverses so many um, uh, sort of stereotypes and, um, and has fun. Um, doing it while at the same time you know, it's always kind of asking us the question um, and then there's that extravagant uh, uh, sort of prehistoric masculinity of the gangsters who are just like forces of mass destruction yeah. um, you know, throughout the film yeah. while um, the boys are actually having the time of their lives even though they're in fear of their lives that's how I um, how I remember it Neil I haven't given you a chance this, what, that's a wonderful double act, isn't it? Jack and uh, Tony in this. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, the problem is the first rule of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre is you must not talk about the St. <laughs> Valentine's Day Massacre. Um, it's lovely. I mean, I, it's so dreamy watching Jack and Tony work together. Uh, and, you know, there's the, the, the right through to sort of Monty Python, the kind of the vocalisation of a man uh, trying to do the voice of a woman and getting the pitch wrong. And, and even mm-hmm. that, that comes in, there's a lovely joke in Way Out West where um, Stan sings and he sings a high octave and his voice is ADR'd by a woman and then a low octave. No, it's beautiful. And of course the, the ending is a, is a lovely sort of non-gender specific pansexual nod with the nobody's perfect. I mean, it's such a... The sort of, final gag yeah, is... Ahead uh, of its time. Yeah. Sort of genuine gender revealed, yeah. not a problem yeah. to um, the multimillionaire Joey yeah. Lewis, who is hilarious, along yeah. with pretty much every other uh, uh, actor that speaks in 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 this movie. It's probably my favourite Billy Wilder movie. Uh, well, that's a very uh, that's a 
that's oh, that's quite a claim. But then, of course, he, he traverses so many different genres. So how, how do you how can you com- compare Sunset Boulevard and Starlog Seventeen with, say, Some Like It Hot or Double or, Indemnity or, or, yeah, or the yeah, the, the, the apartment? You know, it, uh, it's just, I just I just fell in love with Jack Lemmon in the apartment. I saw that when I was really really young. My my parents just loved old movies, especially my dad, mm. and uh, so we got to watch all these things when we were quite young. And I adored the apartment. Jack Lemmon is just beautiful and dreamy with Shirley MacLaine um and it's got sort of a bit of pathos because I think she's a Mm -hmm. bit suicidal and um but just those old black and white movies and the the dialogue um just the yeah it's just just dreamy and it's been great to sort of revisit um these old movies again because of this podcast so thank you Luke well and I'm going to say um Thank you, your parents, because I think what was happening there is so that you wouldn't complain and demand a colour TV, they <laughs> showed you black and white films so you didn't even know. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. We didn't have much money, but we had a lot of love and we had a lot of film watching. And yeah. we used to watch loads of musicals as well. So that's pretty much my heritage. I'm going to talk a little bit about something that I raised earlier, status within double acts, high status and low status, um, because it's something that uh, informs my work, um, for those that care one way or the other. But (laughs) it's so much of what I observe in in, um, double acts that really engage and whose memory sort of stays with us. because even even within the, the the two you know the the two musicians in trouble, you have the more self possessed, higher status uh, Tony, and the less yeah, so he's definitely um, high Jack. So yeah. we, we are seeing this um, time and again. And I'm going to talk about uh, the double act in the movie that I want to mention, which is the producers. Oh, yeah. Uh, because when I rewatch the producers. And I have actually seen it many times. Um, I was once again looking at these um, these two characters who share a kind of destiny, like most double acts. Uh, it, they've got a problem to solve, which is um, they've got to they've got to lose a lot of money in order to make a lot of money, and they've got to do it through putting uh, producing a Broadway flop. And they're kind of tied together the way their fates are tied together, you know, in the way that great sort of partnership fates are tied together so you know um, tony's got tony curtis has got his own wants but you know jack could 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 ruin it you know so and same with stan and ollie they have their own personal wants but they're kind of tied to each other and um what ties um um gene wilder and uh and uh, zero mistel together is they have to put on this um this show it has to lose money they're going to rip off the um the investors that's 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 the, the MacGuffin. but uh their introduction is a wonderful masterclass in the writing of status and 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 the acting uh, of it um, and i i love this how gene wilder comes in as a sort of timid self-effacing a, a, a accountant and there's this enormous personality and enormous physical presence of zero mostel who starts by bullying him who then starts to beg him and eventually seduces him into becoming his partner and it's almost like here's a scene as to how all those great double acts it's like the origin story of so many double acts of abbott and costello or or what um any of these um, 
Walter Matthau and, and, and Jet Lemon or, or, or French and Saunders. Um, you know, how, how, how did it start? How do these two different people end up kind of bound together? What have they got in common? What makes what is different between them, why, why we want to watch them? And um, it's also uh, my one of my favourite political satires ever, because I think that with all, all the wonderful musical pastiches and the wonderful performances and, and the great cast of supporting actors of Dick Shaw and Kenneth Mars, you still have at its centre this uh, ridiculing of all the camp fascist iconography that, that came with, with, with Nazism. Nazism. And it comes from a place of, it comes from the heart. So Mel Brooks said he wrote this partly as a riposte to the anti-Semitism that he had encountered uh, when he was in the army. Uh, as well as the anti-Semitism that poisoned the whole 20th century. Uh, and it's brilliant. And the springtime for Hitler uh, musical climax is, a li it really is the climax. How often do we watch a movie where they go into a special place or meet a special person or they're going to solve a special mystery and the solution and the place and the person, they never live up to the expectations. But when I watched Springtime for Hitler as a teenager at the National Film Theatre, I couldn't believe what I was watching. And as it cut from scene to scene, it got funnier and funnier, funnier. and more and more mischievous. And it is the first and only time I was quaking so much, I did genuinely almost fall out my chair i was shaking and i was sliding down the seat and, and had to stop oh, myself it's just so, so shocking these, it's just sorry? absolutely shocking and hilarious and daring at the same time um, which i will say i'm going to ask you this in a minute in in my comedy i've always lent but even when not consciously i wanted to be a bit of both i want yeah. to make people laugh but i also want to kind of shock them at the same time and put them in their state where they're going i don't know what to do yeah. should i complain or applaud luke <laughs> and and, I, and yeah. boy does that film do it, it um, is, it's, it's quite anyway over yeah. to you um, i think he um when you're watching it and it gets to springtime for hitler you are going is this okay uh, is this am i am i okay to laugh and you're, you're uncontrollably laughing because it's beautifully put together but you, a big part of your brain is going uh, is this is this all is this allowed um what neil was saying about that question is it okay i was thinking for me as a consumer of comedy um the young ones was the first thing that people started to talk about. Is that all right? It just seems mm -hmm. to be so violent and destructive. And then, of course, we had Bill Hicks and we had uh, Andrew Dice Clay and we have Dave Chappelle and we have Frankie Bond and Sarah Silverman and Larry David. And I was thinking, but but Mel Brooks was doing this in 1967 when, you, you know, you couldn't say the word bottom on television. You, you'd got an X rating if, you know, if if you showed a, a yeah. you know, bottom. Uh, in the movies, um, I just think it's really ahead of its time. In it terms was, of... and it was my dad's, my that. dad's Joseph Alveston's favourite musical ever. And I don't know how many times he went to see it or watched it on the TV. He just loved it, loved it. And he was the old generation. I mean, he was born in nineteen twenty-eight, but he thought it was brilliant. So yeah. But I'm I'm really glad you chose this because I nearly chose young Frankenstein because but I couldn't quite crowbar it in as a double act movie but Mel Brooks was so super important to me as a teenager uh, and you know Blazing Saddles has got oh. several jokes oh, in it which yeah. are totally inappropriate but so brilliant. Shocking. Um, but yeah I, I nearly like t 
probably fourth on my list for this podcast was Young Frankenstein. Did you know that um, the original, the double act in Blazing Saddles, uh, which is sort of Gene, Gene Wilder and Cleveland Little, was going to be Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor? Oh. And that would have been amazing. No. Uh, but Richard Pryor, because unfortunately of his substance misuse problem, uh, was late on set. Could, you know, he couldn't be rel- They couldn't get the insurance either. And so he ended up writing gags for it. Oh. Uh, and although they became a double act in Silver Streak and other movies, Gene Wilde and Richard Pryor, I think they would have been absolutely gold in, in Blazing Saddles. Whereas the vehicles for them later on, but none of them were from Mel Brooks, um, uh, were, were never were never as good. My, my, in my you know, in my view, yeah, yeah. My my love of Mel Brooks. So my local video store in um, in South Woodham Ferrers was called Capricorn uh, Capricorn Video, and I still remember to this day how gracious and magnanimous the the guy who ran it was because I'd watched I'd rented and watched History of the World Part One over and over again, and I always asked him, "Do you know when Part Two is coming?" And I was, I was, I was earnest. I wasn't being sarcastic because I didn't get. It wasn't. It wasn't a bit. I was like twelve, thirteen, and but who's I, on base? I thought that yeah, was that. No, but I was, and he never said, "Yeah, oh yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know." Like he never sort of said, "Stupid boy, it's a joke." And, I only, and very much like when you realise that the Beatles is a pun, it was much later when I realised, oh, that's a, that's a joke. The title of this film is a joke and I never got it. However, I got all of the jokes in the film. I just didn't get the meta joke of the title. So no, Mel Brooks has been very important. So thanks for, for flagging up the producers. I remember being really impressed by the end of Blazing Saddles because doesn't it take you into a cinema? Yep, it does. And, and then you're in a cinema and I was a teenager and I thought, this is incredible. So meta. Um, yeah, it's a feature that most people forget about the film because there are so many just wonderful, silly, great one-liners, gags, performances, you know, Madeleine Kahn and everyone in it, that, that, that actually that, that we were talking earlier about breaking the fourth wall, that you know, literally comes, comes through the screen of the cinema uh, at the end. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it also has the Count Basie Orchestra playing in the desert. Yeah. Um, I, I will mention my final film, um, it's less well known, but it has a, what I considered a really unique um, pairing of characters and actors, and it's Hal Ashby's Harold and Maud, because uh, this movie has an 18-year-old male lead and an 80-year-old female lead, and they fall in love, and they actually, um, you know, we see them. We don't see the act because it's 1971. We see them sitting up, you know, in bed together uh, after their friendship develops into a romantic one and um, blossoms uh, in, 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 a, in a sexual way. Uh, so it's absolutely, you know, sort of unique. Uh, the theme is about life and death with a young man and like a lot of alienated failure of the culture uh, the counterculture vietnam war everything gone sour um, nixon era all that stuff is in there 1971 18 year old we're not going to change the world with flower power and so on his kind of nihilism is tempered when he meets um this eight-year-old woman who who, who lives life like tyler durden <laughs> 
uh, um, you know, races cops on their motorcycles, steals things, breaks things, um, goes to funerals and misbehaves. And um, they are kind of uniquely paired throughout this film. So Harold and Maud is one of those uh, several gems from the new Hollywood period that aren't household name movies like Chinatown, like Easy Rider, like um, uh, Body and Pride are. Um, so that's my recommendation Lovely. to anyone out there. Uh, and it just proves there's nothing wrong with an age gap romance. And it also proves that just because you're getting old, you don't have to start behaving. You can still be yourself at any age or do she's whatever She's a you wonderful, want. wonderful character. She's, she's an artist. She's a collector. She's... <laughs> she, there is a scene... Uh, um, she lives in this abandoned trail um, train carriage that looks like it's just been left there from the, I don't know, the hobo era. Uh, <laughs> and you wouldn't know no one's living in it. And uh, but then inside, she's just collected all this stuff from her life. She's been everywhere, met everyone. And uh, one of the things she has is this in, incredible wooden sculpture. It looks a bit like um, a giant violin or the, the uh, frame of a guitar, but it's perforated. And... Uh, He's just sort of stroking it, feeling the um, textures of this beautiful polished wood. And it's bigger than him. It's about eight foot tall. And then he puts his hand through it. And then I suddenly watched it and realised, oh, my God, it's a giant wooden vagina. <laughs> and, um, and it's never referenced because it's 1971. And you realise afterwards, it's a massive piece of erotic art. I never saw it as such, partly because, you know, this is this eccentric lady's place, and you know you start you imagine things, and well, you don't. Well, see you things. were a virgin then. <laughs> oh well, I put it this way: I'd only ever seen the wooden version at that stage. <laughs> no, it was it, no, it was um, anyway. Uh, that's not necessarily the most rewarding scene, but it's one that I remember from it. Harold and Maud. We are coming to the end, so but I hope we've um, we've done justice to those great movies that we've chosen as our favourites, and we've given a platform to the also rans. Leslie and Alberston, Neil Cole, thank you very much for sharing your movies with myself uh, and our audience. This uh, has been another uh, episode in the podcast the movies that made me i am your host luke sorber my producer is andrew payne and this is a picard production